0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Tiffany Chung. Chung is currently featured in Unquiet Harmony, the subject of displacement at the Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. The exhibition spotlights how painter Carlos Alfonso, the collective Superflex, and Chung have examined issues surrounding migration. It's on view through December 31st. This episode was taped before a live audience at the Sheldon on September 25th. Concurrently, New York's Tyler Rollins Fine Art is offering a solo show of Chung's work titled Passage of Time. It's up through November 2nd. Last year, the Smithsonian American Art Museum presented Tiffany Chung' Vietnam Past as Prologue, a solo show that explored the legacies of the Vietnam War, including on Chung's own family. In recent years, she's also exhibited at the Sydney, Guangzhou, and Venice Biennials, and in exhibitions at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, the Museum of Modern Art New York, and SFMOMA. On the second segment, Museum of Fine Arts Houston director and art historian Gary Tindereau discusses Delacroix's Women of Algiers in Their Apartment, an 1833-34 painting, which appears to be the first version of Delacroix's Great Women of Algiers at the Louvre. The museum announced the acquisition just last week. It's already on view. But first, Tiffany Chung, after a break. (music) The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence, the most comprehensive retrospective to date of the work of the prolific painter. Organized by Hammer chief curator Connie Butler, the exhibition features nearly 80 paintings and 50 works on paper spanning Pittman's entire career. A selection of Pittman's drawings will comprise Orangerie, a standalone installation providing an intimate space for viewing Pittman's works on paper. Larry Pittman, Declaration of Independence is on view September 29, 2019 through January 5, 2020. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. 19th century gothic literature meets San Francisco film noir in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, on view at the Legion of Honor Museum. Known for playful artworks that challenge traditional storytelling, Alexander Singh explores the motif of the doppelganger, through a fantastical, thrilling short film presented alongside a selection of prints, sculptures, and paintings from the museum's collection. Mirrored walls inside the exhibition create a visually striking space from which to contemplate the doppelganger motif. Catch a glimpse of your doppelganger in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, on view now at the Legion of Honor Museum. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill, Organized by the Modern's Associate Curator, Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses, explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses, 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18, 2019 through February 9, 2020. Tiffany Chung, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hi, Tyler, thank you.
0: Your work often addresses themes of migration and displacement, even diaspora. Is that related to your family history? And could you give us maybe a quick short biography that kind of lays out a roadmap of that for us?
1: Well, to answer that question, first of all, I am a former Vietnamese refugee. My family came to the US after the fall of Saigon in 1975 whether that plays a lot into my work, yes and no. For the first decade of my practice, I refused to let the conflict in Vietnam and my own family history uh, to shape the expectation of the audience that I'm only capable of doing work related to the, the war or the migration. And deeper than that, it's it's the thing when history affected your family so personally, it takes a lot of time to process. I began to look into it in 2010 with a project that is called Scratching the Walls of Memory. Um, so that was the first time I really confronted the war, you know, head on. But I would have to put that on home for a number of years before I came back to it. So... Basically what I'm trying to say is that uh, it takes time to process memory and trauma. You can only do it when you're ready.
0: About a decade ago, the art historian T.J. Clark gave a series of Mellon lectures at the National Gallery in which he, uh, you know, this is the most prestigious lecture series in American art museums, probably. And Clark argued that it was totally wrong and unfair for art historians or critics to consider the biography of an artist when considering the work or individual works, which is a position of a certain uh, privilege, <laughs> it must be said. How did you think through whether or not you wanted your history and your family's history to be in the work? Was there something that opened the door, something that made it, that impelled you or compelled you? How did you? get to being willing to, to let it in?
1: When you create the work that deals directly with conflict and migration, your history plays an important role. But whether you really negotiate the work, I mean that history into the work or you use it as a driving force, those are two different things. And for mm-hmm. me, my personal history, my family history really like a catalyst that really works through the project. But I don't, I mean, I'm not really interested in making it prominent in the work. With probably only one exception, uh, when I created the installation that called, I kind of forgot the title, but you know, one, the work that is a wall diagram that was showing at the Smithsonian. And that was, you know, for the first time, the biographical aspect plays a role in that installation in which I really tried to understand or unpack the the conflict in Vietnam through the lens of my father's experience. He was a helicopter pilot uh, shot down in Laos and captured and imprisoned in North Vietnam for 14 years. But even that, it's not, the whole installation was not just about him, but just using his experience to understand the war.
0: It was a, a, a great show. Uh, it was last year at the Vietnam, at the same time curator Melissa Ho's American Art in the Vietnam War show was up. About that, that experience of making work about, about the war and in the context of other artists, going back 50 years, addressing the war, Americans don't often talk about or think about the people on behalf of whom Americans believed they were fighting the war. There are lots of reasons for that. I mean, plenty of Americans thought they were fighting the domino theory rather than a conflict that uh, involved actual people. As you thought about the absence of South Vietnamese people from American-constructed narratives, what ways did you consider of of kind of foregrounding and presenting um, the South Vietnamese experience of the war?
1: Do you mean how I presented that or why I presented that? Yeah,
0: the two, both of those.
1: Well, the, the narrative has always been about the Americans that went into the war, and the official account of the war through the, you know, the government of Vietnam, the current government. So we have the voice of South, South Vietnamese, and believe me, we're very loud. We, we're not that quiet, but again, you know, we were being disremembered. So it's not so much about not having a voice, but about not being hurt, right? So I think that's a, a very important reason for me to, to foreground that. And I mean, I, I was less interested in the ideology, but more about the human history, right? The, the kind of the collective remembrance of the war. So I went and I interviewed people, and I usually don't do direct interview and just simply Present the interview videos in other words. But, you know, history, it just, this history is just so real to to these people. When I spoke to them, there's still a sense of urgency. So it's really, it it was very difficult to to think of other ways to present it um, other than just simply presenting what they were saying.
0: You have been foregrounding migration narratives and stories around migration for, for a number of years now. There's, there's the work here, which looks at the Great Plains. You've also made work about Syria and Ukraine. Why is it important to, to you to address and consider migration across geopolitical boundaries? Why, why, why is the South Vietnamese experience relevant to work that addresses the Plains or Syria?
1: Well, I think the world that we live in on one hand is huge, but on the other hand is very small. And I think a lot of things are interrelated and interconnected. And we look back at colonial history. It's like you could trace the same patterns in Africa, in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America. So it's really difficult for for us to try to separate all these different historical events. And without understanding, you know, all these connections and without having, you know, having unpacked this kind of history, history tends to repeat again and again, as we see a lot. So for me, it's just like in order to understand the Vietnam conflict, I have to see it within a larger context, a global context. And, you know, like the Guatemala project, that's the newest project I have just launched in New York last week. Really, you know, it's really a testament to that. When I started learning about Latin America, especially Central America, and hearing stories about, you know, how Guatemalan had to, go, had to come to the U.S. and talking to, to the to the migrants. And they talk a lot about their history. And I kept asking them, are you sure it's not a communist regime that you're telling me about? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. It's very anti-communist in Guatemala. And yet the same tactics Mm -hmm. have been employed again and again. And for someone, me who lived through that communist regime, I mean, I see so many similarities. And the only thing I could think of is like, so it's not so much about ideology, but it's about power, right? I mean, whatever it takes to maintain your grip on power. So I think that those tactics are employed just to serve that purpose. And I see that similarity. So it is an example of how I came to start working on the Guatemala project because of the similarities, and also seeing how history unfolded. And, and the 1954 coup in, in Guatemala to oust President Arbenz, that was the first CIA engineer coup that was so successful that they thought they could use the same structure, the same motive for, you know, uh, different conflicts. And look at Cuba, look at the Bay of Pigs and how horribly it felt and also later on in the sixty, when CIA backed the coup d'etat in Vietnam. It's, it's the same format. So to me, the similarities are there and it's just so hard not to see the connection.
0: Was it from the very start of examining these various conflict areas where you immediately understood the relationship between power and migration, often usually forced migration? Or did that come later?
1: It's a learning process. To me, you know, I, I don't claim that I know everything and, and history is just so huge. So I learned that through time. I learn through researching, reading and, and doing it and making the artworks and slowly, you know, tracing the parents of, of power and, and dominance.
0: What about the Great Plains story attracted you?
1: At the time I was looking at urban development, right? I was looking at a lot of different groups of migration in different parts of the world and the Great Plains, I, you know, I really forgot how it came about, like how I came across (laughs) it. I really (laughs) forgot, but by coming here, like yesterday when I was in a car from the airport to Lincoln, I realize how little I know about this region, hmm. making this body of work. And I just feel like, do I really know much about this to be able to talk about? It? You know, so sorry, I forgot <laughs> how I came across the Great Plain, but what really occurred to me that so many years have passed since I make the work, I'm still learning about it. And I talk a lot about migration and A lot of my work that people know about is about conflict-induced migration. It's not so much about disaster. But one thing that I'm trying to to unpack in my work or to shape policy is that, how do you define a refugee, right? What constitutes someone a refugee? And I think the story of the Dust Bowl of 1930s really plays into that, that argument Because at the time it was called the Dust Bowl refugees, right? It was termed the Dust Bowl refugee. But later on, in a lot of uh, studies that have conducted, you know, after that or in the recent decades, like in the 90s, people started to talk about the migration to California and a lot of these Dust Bowl—I mean, the Great Plains region, according to my understanding. It's a region with not very populated, so the population scattered, and a lot of the um, migrants or a lot of the refugees that migrated west, actually not the ones that were affected directly by the Dust Bowl, right? So, yeah, they experienced drought, and, and what's the other issues that the Great Plains... Um, uh, loss of topsoil. Right, but not all of them were you know, affected directly from the, from the Dust Bowl, uh, from the Dust Bowl counties. So therefore, okay, well, the argument is maybe we need to redefine what constitutes a refugee, right?
0: When I was in high school in California, where a great many Dust Bowl migrants went, I remember being taught in school two, two terms, mm-hmm. um, Okies, even though, you know, I don't know what the percentage of Oklahomans who, who migrated was, but that was that was the term that gets used in textbooks a lot. And migrants, and we didn't hear refugees a lot, even though there is an international. There was an international process. Yeah.
1: Another debate is whether to categorize somebody as political refugee or economic migrant. How do you define that? Look at the case of the Dust Bowl right? Was it because of economic reason or was it political reason? So, I mean, to to kind of separate this population, I think is quite problematic. And maybe that's why, you know, I was drawn into this dust bowls of the 1930s.
0: The biggest, yeah, the biggest piece upstairs here at the Sheldon is called in Between Foraging Sites, First Raindrops and the Big 50. And it's the piece that features uh, glass bison on, on an abstracted landscape, uh, which is a white tabletop, air quotes, looking thing. Is that a fair description? <laughs> 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 Anytime you have to use air quotes and e-looking thing, one gets nervous. But so it's a piece that addresses the initial American migration in, into the plains, and the peoples and the animals that, that were there in, in the 19th century. And I found myself today thinking a lot about how everything in that work serves as a counterpoint to Albert Bierstadt's famous painting from 1888, The Last Buffalo. Um, yours is mini bison, his is, is one buffalo. Yours are alive and pretty easy to see the light moving across them and the mind conjures them as moving. And in the Bierstadt, the, the single, final buffalo is being killed. Your landscape is abstracted. His is, is uh, a plains landscape. Did you have his painting in mind at all as something to engage with or react against? Because I think that's the artwork that Americans, mo- the single artwork that Americans mm-hmm. most think of when they think of... Um, the bison. Yeah.
1: I'm not even familiar with that painting, oh, to tell cool. you the truth. Oh, cool! I think art school failed me.
0: <laughs> you went. You went to Long Beach State and UC Santa Barbara. So the state of California is is, uh, is 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 um, embarrassed. Another thing about your strategy of I don't know if strategy is the right word. Another thing about your practice of addressing many. Migration stories and histories, um, and not confining your practice to a single national migration story or diaspora and and how you include the dust Bowl within that, is part of your strategy or idea is that if uh, an American audience can empathize with and understand an American migration caused by politics or a dramatic climate event has happened in the Plains in the 20th century that American audiences might be, hopefully would be, able to differently empathize with other global migration events?
1: I think race plays a major role in the literature on the Dust Bowl. The fact that the focus of the Dust Bowl was this group of European migrants to the Great Plain, and their Caucasian names, and their white skin. I mean, nothing against that, but I'm just saying it used a lot in the Dust Bowl literature to gain empathy Hmm. for people who could totally relate to that. But I think a lot of Americans could not relate to the same Mexican-American farmers that took over their job in California or continue that, that farming job, they would get less sympathy, I would say. So in a way to, you know, to revisit the Great Plains and to talk about this, one thing is to bring up the issue of race. Another thing is you know, to, to remind us that disaster can strike anywhere and at any time to any of us. Today, you know, we sit here feeling safe that we're not refugees. We're not the one who, who, you know, who crossed the Mediterranean and get drowned. But you never know what can happen to us. We can become refugees in the next decade, the next year, the next two years. We don't know that, right? So, you know, to... You know, to just like put that group in this, in the context of them being refugees, us versus them, I find it disappointing. So I, I think it's important. This work becomes very important to me in that way, within that context of understanding the definition and the whole idea about what what a refugee is.
0: I think the embroidered pieces put the viewer in that physical position. As you're standing looking at them, they all end visually um, more or less in the year you made them, you know, up to the present, as it were. And in each of them, we see, uh, oh, uh, hmm, this ocean is warming, and we know what happened last time. Um, there was a drought caused, caused by that kind of climate change. Why embroidery for this?
1: For, for that project in particular, I wanted to um, use embroidery to depict that domestic environment of the early European migrants to the region. One thing is uh, like the extreme climate impact. Another thing was the wrong agricultural practice that the migrant brought to the region at the time. By you know, using the technique that they brought from Europe did not work for the region, right? This region with the topsoil that was protected, you know, the grass on the topsoil, the topsoil was protected by the grasses. And to like, to practice that kind of agriculture, it, it's really removed, it displays the grass. And when the, the, the storm, the windstorm came, That's what we have, you know, we got a Dust Bowl right there. So, I mean, I don't try to simplify, there are just so many uh, nuances. But I think, you know, in a nutshell, that's what one would get when one tried to understand what caused the Dust Bowl. So, you know, going back to the embroidery, I was just telling Appy today that I should have embroidered them on tablecloth. (laughs) <laughs> that will make the message very clear. But, you know, I didn't know it would have been really difficult to try to present a table plot, you know.
0: And, you know, there's a certain canvas tradition that that puts that work within. It we'll make it easier yeah.
1: to display, to present. Let's talk about maps.
0: Uh, there's a great video on SF MOMA's website that you made for them I don't know, probably about a decade ago now. Oh, God. And, and they ask you about maps, uh, and, and, you know, you can't hear the person asking the question, but you, 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 you laugh, uh, and, and it becomes immediately clear that the question you've been asked was, how many maps have you made? And you just said, I've made a lot of maps. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you have across um, much of your career. So before we get into why you make maps and, and what you want them to communicate, when did they become interesting to you as a form?
1: 2007. Oh, why then? Well, I didn't know what I made at the time was maps.
0: Oh, you weren't thinking of them as maps.
1: I, so, you know, I was looking into urban development in Saigon. I was living in Japan at the time, and I saw some images in the newspaper when I visited home in the U.S., and I got images in the Vietnamese newspaper of, like, certain areas in Saigon under major transformation. And the change in the landscape was not even recognizable. So I thought that was so interesting. I went back to Vietnam. And I I was, I collected all the urban planning maps of that area. And I was trying to draw, you know, the landscape. And the next thing I knew, I was just making a map without even knowing it. That's how the map started.
0: And so why did you decide to continue using them, even making them kind of a real focal point of of your work, at least certainly in Vietnam and Syria and probably one or two other places.
1: I really, I mean, I I really like the fact that I could create a map. How many of you can do that? Can say like, yeah, I make maps.
0: (laughs) Because there's an enormous amount of information within a readily understandable thing that humans the world over have used for centuries. Right. I mean, you can really fill the form with a lot of very complicated information.
1: Right. Well, you know, joking aside, it's, it's so much about what a map means to people, like to most of us. A map supposed to be like very mechanical, very technical. It shows you to go from point A to point B. But in reality, maps are highly subjective. Yeah. So recently, I I had this conversation about different projections, like the Mercador projection versus the Peter's projections, and the accuracy of certain maps versus others. I I mean, maps are highly subjective. And when you look at a map, it doesn't really give you the reality that a map's supposed to represent. Right? So, a map is actually, you know, an abstraction of reality, and when the is supposed to represent a place is actually it's shaped a place. If you look at, like colonial maps yeah. of the 19th century, what so-called historical maps, right and then I was just reading this essay by Benedict Anderson. He talked about the three institutional powers, which is the census, map, and the museum. And he said how does the development of census taking by um, building grids. So that's no longer about counting the people, right, but projecting how many people would be in certain area using the grid system to project and and later on, right, the kind of society was formed based on this colonial earlier fantasies. And it was such a like a powerful essay that I that makes me more aware of of the function that maps play.
0: One of the ways I think your maps work is they don't—you don't always or often or maybe almost never give us keys. You know, I do some, <laughs> some, but not always. Right, right. Um, and one of the things um, the, 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 you mentioned abstraction—the way abstraction works, at least for me—is when I'm in front of a Clifford Still painting, I will try to find canyon lands because I know he's he's abstracting away from from Western landscapes. Or when I'm looking at a uh, 1964 Sam Gilliam. I know he was making abstractions motivated by the assassina- assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and I'm looking for references to that. One of the things that I think art has taught us to do is when we when there's an abstraction in front of us, to use that as a reason to look carefully to find a source. Is that a process that is important to you? Do you hope that because people recognize your maps as aesthetic objects that because they're used to looking at abstraction because we've been looking at abstraction now for 70 years that Mm -hmm. they will be because of that training they'll be motivated to solve the document if you will
1: you know like for me aesthetics plays a very important role um, in my work and the subject matters of my work have always been very difficult and I think when you talk about war, about conflict, it's really difficult for, for people to absorb, right, to process. Now, in order for an audience to approach an artwork, I think aesthetics plays that role in inviting people in. So it is a strategy that I have employed in my work for many years that I use aesthetics to so that it gives people this safe distance for people to approach the work without worrying so much about what I'm saying. But once they they in it, they in that space, confront the work, they will also confront the, the topic that the work is trying to uh, discuss. Uh, now, with abstraction, I mean, I do come from that tradition of the late 90s of Dave Hickey. The idea of, beauty, bringing back the beauty into the work. And, you know, abstraction, as we all know, like, again, maybe I, I failed so badly in art school. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, abstraction, to me is like, when I learn about abstraction, I think about Kandinsky, I think about spirituality, right? And then or you think about Matisse, you think about form, like simplification. For me, it's like I, like I explained earlier, it's not so much about abstraction that I focus on, but I think it, it is that when um, people see the work within that tradition, I think it's relevant because of the colors, the shapes, that things that people can relate to, right? And that open up kind of possibilities. Now, abstraction for me, it's like I explained earlier, is beyond just the, the art discourse abstraction plays into this whole idea of like abstract information. How do you make it more visible, more real? Does that Diaspora
0: itself in a way is an abstraction? We can It's an abstract concept. Yeah.
1: Right? You hear it, it just like blah blah blah. It means nothing to you but until you see it. And another thing I use with with infographics and data visualization is that I played the same game that colonial powers set out to play with the map, which, which is to exaggerate. exaggerate right? So if you look at all these dots, these big red dots on the map, and you look at the region, the topography like of certain countries being so small, now this red dot that represents the number of refugees in Syria, in the region, whether in Lebanon or in Turkey, it's so huge. It's even bigger than Syria itself. On the map. <laughs> On the map, right? It really, it plays the importance of that, like the urgency of the situation.
0: It's using a language that in America anyway, developed as a kind of retreat from geopolitical issues to take advantage of Americans' familiarity with that language, to then make them look at geopolitical issues. It's a complete, it's a circularity that, that, that turns the thing upside down, which I think is
1: well you got to use what's available.
0: How did you come to start doing map-making projects with refugees?
1: It started with the, the Syria humanitarian crisis. I've been collecting infographics and data and statistics since 2012. And to me, it's it just, you know, how do I present... Uh, a very complex set of data and information. I I found only through map that I can start doing that. I can present this, right? I can I collected a lot of statistics. I analyze all the numbers because, you know, on one map it may tell you uh, a set of numbers, but if you look at different sources, you got different numbers. So I do collect these statistics from like different, uh, different sources. And then I try to come up with what would be the most repeated statistics and I will go with that. Uh, hopefully that would be the correct number. But like, again, we, we can never know the reality in Syria as an example, as the war is still going on, right? So that's how I started.
0: So you took the information to uh, a nonprofit, or mu- I guess it was a museum. It's the Louisiana. It's a museum. a lot. It's a lot
1: of agencies,
0: and so and so. You asked for refugees who are interested in working with you, or how did that 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 come to work?
1: You mean for the maps or for yeah, the for
0: the for the maps first?
1: Well, for the maps is just simply the inf- like the data that I have collected from online sources. So that with the refugees. Um, with the Syrian refugees, for the Vietnamese refugees, is so much more. The project is so much more complicated.
0: It's representational, for one. Right. Um, those are photographs that that then are being made into watercolors.
1: Right. I mean, it's also like ethical issues with the current refugees. I I don't really go and interview them uh, for obviously for ethical reasons, but with the Vietnamese former refugees there's a period of over 40 years so even for informations like records have already been released that you can study like i spent a lot of time at the unhcr in geneva to go through the archival materials so with that there's a lot of possibilities there's a lot of materials for me to work with
0: the project you 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 did in research in in geneva was to try to understand the migration of South Vietnamese to countries all over the world in, in pretty much every habitable continent. I mean, I don't think Antarctica, right? Probably not. No. No. Mostly um, the
1: um, the West and the global South.
0: So this was a project that academic researchers really hadn't done. That you were you, you were building um, an extraordinary database of information about how the diaspora had worked and where people had gone and where those populations were now. When you have that much information that you have built yourself, how, do you, how did you approach aestheticizing it? How did you approach what you want things to be or look like or even with whom you wanted to make them?
1: You are asking a million dollar question. <laughs> it's, it's a constant yeah. <laughs> struggle and negotiation of you know, how to materialize all these research findings. is intellectual negotiation, it's artistic negotiation. And, you know, one thing in my practice that I've always done without, without being taught is that I have no fear of employing different mediums. Like, I just, I don't have fear in that. I just do whatever it takes. And if I don't know how to do something, I'll ask someone to help me with, I collaborate with somebody, and in terms of disciplines, I do the same thing with my research. You know, like people sometimes label me as an anthropologist, which I'm not. But I'm not afraid of, of you know crossing boundaries, um, just so that I can learn and I can present. So same goes with um, the artworks. I, I think about what would be best present, you know, certain information that I have collected, like the map is inevitable. I will always use maps no matter <laughs> what, <laughs> because, you know, after so many years of practicing, it comes so easily, right? I mean, it's, it's still very time consuming, but it comes easily when, when it gets to like, you know, you try to project your work in terms of the mapping. Um, but other mediums i also I also employed, and I mean it's hard to break it down why well, let's I pick to two do this. Let's
0: pick two so I can't think of anything almost more different than embroidery and video
1: right <laughs>
0: uh, and yet you use both how what what type of information works in embroidery and what type of information works in video because those are choices you have to have made, so as you're going through something, how do you go, oh, embroidery, oh, video. Uh,
1: you know, like I explained earlier about the v- the interviewing the former Vietnamese refugees.
0: Which was presented, um, I think it was 19?
1: With 21, 21 interviews. interviews, I selected 21 interviews and we presented in one of the galleries. Yeah. So I'm ready to explain that, right? I mean, the history is so real, what else can I do? Uh, besides present them as they are. Now with the embroidery or the mapping, when I discovered that the scale and the scope of the migration, it was just like a moment of revelation. Right? I came across all these files of Vietnamese people in Africa and in the Middle East, right? And I told my dad, I said, Dad, Vietnamese people went to uh, Central African Republic. And he's like, yeah, I know this one guy who went there. (laughs) And I'm like, are you serious? Are you in touch with him? He's like, yes, I have his number. You want to call him? (laughs) So then I called the guy, and I said, oh, so I heard that you went there. And he's like, no, I went to Cote Mm d'Ivoire. So I'm like, that's even better. (laughs) Because (laughs) I have this set of of documents that I collected from the UNHCR on Cote d'Ivoire. It's so fragmented that you have no idea how people got there, right? And how many, and I only know because the UNHCR has a vast collection of documents. They don't know their content. There's just one conflict after another, Mm -hmm. one crisis after another. They don't have enough resources, human resources and like the actual funding to, to study. And but maps,
0: I, and maps and maps absorb ambiguity in that way
1: yes and it's also it shows it mapped the routes of the vietnamese yeah. flying to different parts of the world and i had to i collect all these information and and i also you know interviewing people really helps you to understand these rather abstract documents because it just simply like Vietnamese and Cote d'Ivoire between nineteen eighty two to nineteen eighty four. What does that tell you? Not much. But, you know, when I interviewed this one person, he actually told me how they got there. And they were just so excited, right? I was so excited. I went back to the documents. Everything makes sense. Now how do I present this? Right? And then and he just Cote d'Ivoire is one of the of the many countries that we ended up being. So I, I have to resort to map, and the work started from there. So it's not just one country, but other countries. And, and I have to learn all these uh, flight routes during the 80s as well, like the 70s and the 80s. Commercial planes, like taking these Vietnamese refugees from refugee camps in Southeast Asia, in Japan, Hong Kong, to all over the world. Right? The fly routes change, too. So mm-hmm. I study that. And then you do the whole process of elimination. So you see a lot of files that say, oh, they were at Chile. And later on, you really looked, and nobody went there because Chile didn't accept them. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's elimination. So I just wanted to map the route of the Vietnamese migration just to show this, the scale and the scope of this migration.
0: I want to tell a little story about one of my experiences with one of your maps. For an exhibition at at SF MoMA a number of years ago, you made two maps, single artwork, that addressed the history of natural disaster and displacement in in San Francisco. The displacement, of course, um, happens after the 1906 earthquake and fire. You took an 1895 map of the city and laid it over the intensity of the earthquake, and then there's a map that shows the water system that provided San Francisco with fresh water. I think the first time I saw the piece, I didn't know this, but by the second time I saw it, I knew that my family had built that water system, and it provided a very—you um, know—that one of my my great great one of my great great grandfathers built one dam, and then another great great grandfather built the next dam south, and I found that in looking at the work and understanding the abstractions within it, that I could find my past or a kind of my past within it, which then led me to wanting to spend more time with the work and to find more stories in it. And I wonder if my experience aligns with what you hope happens when a viewer looks at your work. Do you hope they find a story of theirs or a story they can relate to, to hang their hat on that will then bring them into to the rest of one of your maps?
1: Of course, I think it's really important that the audience see a piece of history that relates to them directly. I mean, that's all we can hope for. But at the same time, I hope that the work gives people an entry point into learning something that might not necessarily about them, but something that they could also relate to, to understand the world at large.
0: I found that when I had that experience with the San Francisco map, that I, when, I, when I went back and looked at your other maps, I began thinking less of systems and geopolitical systems or migration, or, 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 or the power systems that led to migration, and I began thinking of people. Right. And it was kind of a... Like, for me, it was a moment at which a lot of the work clicked into place. I guess that was about when I saw the Smithsonian show and then you know, the, there is you know, a, a single person to whom a whole gallery more or less is devoted and all of a sudden these abstractions became humanized which I thought was, which, which really worked for me. It was really great.
1: That's a really good summing up of the maps actually because when I started out making map about urban planning I, I did think a lot about the human aspect in the map that is almost absent in a lot of maps that we look at, right?
0: It's like that was the whole point, was to chronicle populations and places rather than people. Right. And yours bring it back to people.
1: Right. So that's why the dots grow uncontrollably in do you have, maps. Did,
0: when you think of dots, did you... One more thing and then we'll, <laughs> we'll do question. There are certainly art historical references for dots, whether we're talking about you know, pointillism, which then leads to impressionism, you know, all those Surat dots, or, or in pop art, say Kusama, Yoyoi Kusama. Were you interested in any art historical connections between dots and the way you use dots in maps?
1: Well, I love Yoyoi Kusama and I love polka dots. So, you know, like my work is just so intense like labor intensive and also like exhausting in terms of like researching and trying to understand the research materials. So at least I get that enjoyment of putting (laughs) dots, like micro dots on my maps that I could sit there for weeks and just putting little dots on the maps. And I think the dots are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And my vision is getting worse and worse and worse. (laughs) But yes, but I, I do love dots. I think it's just so simple like that.
0: There's like a several hundred year visual cultural history of how artists have used dots to, to bring bigger pictures into focus.
1: Right. And so I think, I think they work that And it is the satisfaction way. of making a perfect circle. <laughs> thanks for coming. Thank you, thanks for coming.
0: The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary Indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division, presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of Indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020 at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash voices. Opening October 8th at the Getty Center, Manet and Modern Beauty the first exhibition ever to explore the last years of painter Edward Manet's short life. Stylish portraits, luscious still lifes, delicate pastels and watercolors, and vivid cafe and garden scenes convey Manet's elegant Parisian social world and reveal his growing fascination with fashion, flowers, and the contemporary trappings of femininity. Learn more about this major exhibition and get tickets at getty.edu slash 360. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents... More Like a Forest, Paintings and Sculptures by Richard Allen Morris at its downtown location through October 27th. This presentation, comprising a sculptural series from the artist's collection, as well as paintings drawn from the museum's own holdings, highlights Morris's ceaseless transformation of ordinary materials into extraordinary creations. For more information, visit mcasd.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Museum of Fine Arts Houston director and art historian. He was previously the chairman of the Department of 19th Century Modern and Contemporary Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Gary Tinero. He joins me to discuss Delacroix's Women of Algiers in Their Apartment, an 1833-34 painting which was recently rediscovered and which appears to be the first version of Delacroix's great Women of Algiers from 1834 in Paris at the Louvre. The MFA Houston announced the acquisition last week. It's already on view. Gary Tinero, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you, Tyler. Glad to be here.
0: Before we get to the art history of your new painting and its relationship with the women of Algiers in Paris, how was the painting rediscovered and how did it come to
2: arrive in Houston? Well, I'm not completely privy to the rediscovery in a French private collection that seems to have been prompted by last year's great Delacroix exhibition that was held at the Metropolitan Museum and at the Louvre. But I understand from the French press that a woman who owned the painting was intrigued to find out more about it and its relationship to the famous painting at the Louvre because of those festivities and all the publicity surrounding it. And she approached the dealer, uh, Philippe Mondez, who is a fine art historian and himself had worked at the Louvre. And he commissioned art historical studies and technical studies, which cemented the attribution to Delacroix and indicated its primary role in the the genesis of that famous composition at the Louvre. And how did you come to get it? Well, uh, as uh, as someone who's worked on romantic French painting uh, and someone who works at a museum that acquires works of art, Sleep had contacted me with his discovery, and I thought, you know, très bien. But I was dubious, and I and I. There have been a number of so-called purported studies, sketches, works relating to famous images in public collections that have reemerged in recent years, and I think most of them are not works by Delacroix, but. Meant to be, they were copies or studies by other artists who wanted to learn from those examples, and so I was immediately skeptical and dubious, but uh, intrigued enough when I blew up the the photograph on my iPad to want to come see it in per, uh, person. And Philippe is a series fellow, and and he wouldn't he wouldn't take these attributions lightly, and uh, so I booked an appointment when I was next in Paris, and I just happened to be there prior to scheduled visits from a few other prominent and well-funded museums. And I immediately, just walking in and seeing it on the easel, I, I immediately knew it was by Delacroix. It has all of the spontaneity and freshness of his work, as well as a number of key characteristics, sort of, you know, unconscious marks that he makes, whether it's a certain line, that is quite animated, that he learned from Rubens, Michelangelo, etc., that's characteristic of his informal, spontaneous sketches, as well as applications of his color theory, which was just emerging then in the early 1830s, but the enlivening of patches of color with sharper tones, let's say a bright orange in the midst of a carmine red passage, things like that, which are so not unique to Delacroix, but so characteristic of him and not really used by anyone else at this moment. And so it had all the hallmarks of a Virginian work, but it mainly just had that right look and feel when you, when you first see it.
0: Where in the development of the canvas now at the Louvre was, was your painting produced? And do we know where?
2: I think it's, you know, I don't know that we know with certainty that he made any paintings in North Africa. You know he he left in eighteen thirty one we you know we often think of it as the eighteen thirty one trip France was uh, moving into Al- Algeria and he visited on a diplomatic mission arriving in january eighteen thirty two uh thanks to the Comte de Mornay, who figures in the history of our painting and he uh, visited Morocco and on the way home through Spain and Algiers, he continued to make sketches and these sketches, which are pencil drawings and notebooks and watercolors, were used, we think, when he returned to Paris uh, to create any number of compositions for, for the remainder of his life. And uh, our painting, the Houston painting, derives specifically from one of those uh, watercolors and, and and adheres very closely to it, showing a Muslim woman in her home with her African maid. And those are the two principal figures, of course, in the, in the Louvre painting. But the Louvre painting has the addition of two two seated figures in the middle of the composition, which derive from another sketch that he made. And so, to make the Louvre painting, he put together two watercolors: the one that gave birth to our painting, as well as the two central seated figures. You know, sort of widened the room to make room for these two additional figures. But ours comes first, and and the reason we we can say that with with some certainty is. First, the spontaneity of our, of our picture, uh, the fact that he's still sort of searching and, uh, for the composition, it's not a pat thing that already uh, exists fully formed in his mind, which is what a repetition would, would reveal. And to me, the most telling point that, that indicates the, the order of the works, the painted works is that there's a, a pillow with a bright turquoise satin in the middle of our composition. And in the Louvre painting, that pillow becomes the knee and leg of uh, one of the seated figures. So that tells us that you know Delacroix liked that bright note of turquoise blue green in the center of his composition. And if he and if it wasn't going to be a pillow, then it was going to be the knee of the woman, and and that that that, that comes you know second. So and it also just sort of makes sense that this 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 souvenir of the visit to uh, Algiers. Uh, we would have been acquired by the Comte de Mornay. We don't know if it was a gift or if he paid for it, and then what uh, censures the, the attribution to Delacroix is that it was sold by the Comte de Mornay in an auction in Paris in 1850, lot number 118, and stenciled on the back of our painting, and that was only found later in the research of Philippe Mondez, is the lot number 118, stenciled on the back of the canvas. So it was sold by the Conte Mornay. We know that Delacroix knew about the sale because he complained to his lawyer, go talk to Mornay, he's selling seven of my paintings, including one, Cleopatra, that he's not even paid me for yet. So Delacroix was annoyed by the sale. He didn't say, oh, and by the way, the, 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 the Women of Algiers is not authentic, it's not by me. So Comte Mornay, one of the most important collectors of Delacroix's early work, sells it in 1850 for reasons I don't know. And I forget the name, but one knows the name from annotated sales catalogs of who bought it, a French collector, and then it, it descended into obscurity, only to reemerge in a, in a French private collection last year. We do see that there are two custom stamps where it left Santiago de Chile and entered Paris in 1963, the year of the centennial celebrations in Paris, and returned from Paris to Santiago de Chile in 1963. So that that's all we know in terms of its 20th century ownership.
0: We'll have images of both paintings on manpodcast.com. You'll be able to see the cushion made into a woman quite clearly. So how many studies or drawings for the, the Louvre painting do we have, and how does your new painting impact our understanding of the narrative of how the Paris painting developed? other than other than the woman in the knee, of course, because there's some other key differences.
2: Well, I think it would be fascinating to review uh, what we know and have assumed about the genesis of the Louvre painting now in the new light of our picture, because I'm sure that some details will, will in, in, of the sequence will, will change as a result. But there were, I don't know, more than a dozen studies, I think, little pencil sketches and watercolors, of all the details in, in both works the panel door, uh, the mirror, either the calligraphic inscription, which is either on a sheet of paper or a painting or or perhaps an engraved glass to the right of the African maid, the shoes of, of the principal Muslim woman on the left, the Arab woman. All these details were described by Delacroix and his watercolors, and then used, I think, in the fabrication both of the Houston painting and then the Paris painting.
0: One of the things Delacroix changes between your painting and the Paris painting is the two diagonals that pin down the composition, if you will. One is the shadow reflected on the back wall at, at the far left that creates a compositional line that extends through to the bottom of the painting on, on, on the left. And the other is the hanging textile at the rear of the painting, and indeed the rear of the room that Delacroix is painting, that would close off the space were it not held back by a sash, which creates a second green diagonal and continues through through the figure on the far right. In your painting, that puts the eye on and suggests that the action is at the open red-lined door in the back, that someone is about to come through. In the the, the Paris painting and the Louvre painting, the composition is much more open in the center. How how does Delacroix's opening up the middle of the painting change how we think of it, maybe how we, even we think of the narrative of the painting?
2: You know, that's really just a matter of speculation, I think. But in terms of any, when you say changes the narrative, of course, we each construct our own narrative when we look at the work of art and, and think about it. Uh, so we can't access Delacroix's intention or or thought, really, in this. But in widening the composition into a horizontal scene that gives Delacroix literally the room and space to create depth in the composition. And to suggest mystery and invite our questioning, you know, what's going to happen next? Is someone going to walk through that door? And who will that someone be? Will it be another woman? Because this is the harem, these are the women's quarters. Or could it be the man, the man of the household? That's less a question in the Houston painting, which is a much more intimate scene of a, a woman and her and her maid, in the, uh, quite literally in the privacy of her particular quarters. And that, of course, was the great thrill for Delacroix, which was to, for the first time on his trip, so fascinated by Muslim and Arab culture, to be able to penetrate, and I use the word specifically, the female quarters an affluent man's household. And that was for, you know, a, a European male, extremely exciting.
0: Picasso and Matisse repeatedly engage with each other through this painting, through the 1834 Paris painting to which your painting led. Matisse's landmark blue nude Souvenir de Biskra, Memory of Biskra, is the first salvo, a painting in which Matisse mixes Delacroix's subject with modern media postcards and how the harem is received in France at the time by postcard. And then Picasso responds to it with Les Demoiselles and so on. And then in 1954, of course, Picasso responds to Matisse's death with a series of 15 paintings and many drawings informed by the 1834 Delacroix, the Women of Algiers series. Why do you think Picasso chose Delacroix as the medium, if you will, for his dealing with Matisse's death on
2: canvas? you know the matisse was much more associated in everyone's mind with luxuriant reverie and indolence and exoticism than than was picasso so that was matisse's brand and matisse's view you know taking some of delacroix subjects and and extraordinary color combinations that was something that was you know that nurtured Matisse's art throughout uh, throughout most of his career, certainly, you know, two-thirds of it. But embedded in all those pictures you just cited, of course, is Ingres. And Ingres' Grand Orlisque, uh, which appeared, you know, a dozen years before the 1834 uh, Louvre painting, is also embedded in all those pictures that you cite and included, embedded also in the Delacroix. You know, the, the seated. The seated figure, the reclining figure, is, you know, another odalisque. But this is a real-life woman in her own quarters, fully clothed, as opposed to the imagined odalisque that Angra created. But the, the you know the hookah, the rich patterns of the of the carpets and tiles, and plasterwork, all that was already evoked by by Ang, you know, uh, in the teens, maybe as early as. 18- 1814 I think so that's that's there as well so when Picasso you know, is thinking about the death of Matisse, his own mortality and he wants to in a sense pay tribute to what Matisse's art was it's natural for him to go back to one of these great compositions that was so important for the both of them and there was the added factor which is uh, one of the seated women happened to look like uh, Jacqueline uh, Picasso's new companion and future wife and that that was a key factor it's the the seated woman at the right adjacent in the Louvre painting adjacent to the African woman and so that was a key a key aspect as well
0: the painting is on view now in Houston do you have any plans ideas speculations for what you might want to do with it exhibition wise going forward
2: We've just had a big Delacroix exhibition. I don't think those paintings are going to be traveling anytime soon. You know, the, our primary impetus was simply to, to add this to our growing collection of romantic painting. We have a fine study by uh, Gérard. We already had in our collection, bought almost 30 years ago, an extraordinary small chasserio done you know, 15 years later when he went to North Africa very much in the, uh, wanting to do so because of his heroes, Delacroix paintings and, uh, and visit there, two women with a gazelle. So it's a perfect interior scene to complement our new Delacroix. And we also are showing our 1829 Mary Magdalene at the foot of Christ's cross, as well as uh, a late landscape. So we have a, a wall of Delacroix and Cesario now, which shows uh, different uh, modes of French Romantic painting, whether it's the exoticism of North Africa, whether it's uh, the excitement of travel because our, our seascape suggests a shipwreck, whether it's you know religious iconography and the Mary Magdalene at the cross, it also shows that at the, in the middle of the nineteenth century, you know which we or the second quarter of the nineteenth century, which we typically looking back point to as the genesis or the roots of of modernism and the turn away from typical old master subjects like religious subjects or mythological subjects to current day subjects like the exoticism of North Africa or to the Barbizon Forest or everyday life. That Delacroix was one of the last of the old master painters. The last of the one of the last of the painters to have a complete classical education, no you know, reading Greek and Latin literature composing compositions that illustrate great literature of the past including english literature like like shakespeare uh, and trying to give form to the myths and stories uh, that we've created over the centuries in in western culture so i see him as the last exponent of that particular line which which runs from the late 1400s into into the mid 19th century and doesn't really go much further because, although other people, Gauguin, Picasso, Matisse, Matisse was well educated, but few of them, of the subsequent artists, believe in the great stories of Western civilization in the way that Delacroix did quite naturally. And with that belief comes a, a, a certain confidence and force uh, in expression. When Picasso is making his wrists on the women of Algiers, it's a pretext for him. And he could, although he knew the painting very well to Louvre, he could have also been working from a postcard. It just didn't really matter. It was simply a starting point, a pretext. Whereas for Delacroix, there is an authenticity and therefore, I think, an extraordinary strength of conviction in these compositions that somehow make the experience of his works even that much more compelling.